Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is roughly inspired by audience questions on the election, and I try to sort of take up two. What are my reflections on the Trump period and my own commentary on it? And what do I see as the future direction for the progressive movement in the States? I actually, as you'll hear, did a few takes of this episode, and I tried to really condense it down. I think I tried and failed to get it to, like, an hour and change, but um, I'm overall pretty happy with everything that I got in it. And by the way, apologies that episodes have been on a bit more of, uh, how would you say this, an irregular release schedule. I'm still getting set up in the UK getting a job, getting an apartment, all of that stuff here. It's going pretty well, but it's obviously messed with the podcast release schedule a bit, so thank you all for your patience with this. I think the episode is fairly self-explanatory, so let's just get straight to it, except to say, as always, um, if you do like this podcast, the interviews, the commentary that I do, please do consider supporting it. I try to put a lot of work and a lot of thought into the commentary that I do, and I love doing that. Um, But if you do want to support it, consider sponsoring it on Patreon. We don't have any advertisements, any commercial sponsors, anything like that. All of the funding for the podcast comes from listeners like you. So I've been suggesting a $2 an episode suggested donation. That's a suggestion. You can do more. You can do less. Um, But that's a great way to support the show, and it genuinely does make what I'm doing possible. If you're not able to support monetarily, sharing the episodes also helps. And I'm currently running a promotion where anyone who shares their favourite episode and why, and tags me in it so I see them, on either Facebook or Twitter, I'll enter them into a draw to receive a free item from the podcast store. So if you want to win a free t-shirt or a coffee mug with our logo on it, um, just share your favourite episode and why you like it, tag me in it, and I'll do a random draw um, within the next few days and send the winners some free merch as a thank you. And as always, you know, whether you win the merch or not, I'm genuinely grateful for anyone who supports the podcast. Um, I called this episode Quo Vardis, sort of as a perhaps slightly pretentious allusion to the overall theme. It's a reflection on this whole period, which has been the one we've been living in through the podcast's entire history, and my initial thoughts on where we go from here. So, without any further preamble, let's get straight to it. This is Quo Vardis. A Q&A on the election. Okay, so, audience questions, election edition. This is actually my second recording of this episode. I had a bunch of questions, I sat down, I tried to answer them all, 
in my usual sort of freestyle way where I just read out a question, gave my thoughts on it, and before I'd even got through half of them, I'd gone on for two and a half hours with sort of meandering, circuitous thoughts where I'd repeated myself in my answers to different questions. And I just sort of thought, come on, Toby, you can do better than that. When I have a two and a half hour episode, it's because I want there to be two and a half hours of really <laughs> solid material in it, which sometimes I feel like I have. Um, but in this one, I figured I'd actually try to just condense my thoughts around a few key areas and self-consciously limit myself to an hour, which should be more than enough time to give my main reactions to what's going on. Um, and I think the main things I want to say can fit in an hour, and then some areas where, honestly, I don't know the answer, I can just say that and move on. And I think, actually, one of the sort of things good political commentary should do is not only go, here's what I think I know and my opinions and why, but also stress areas where we don't know and why we think we don't know. So... In this one, I'm going to sort of consolidate questions together that are sort of pushing in the same direction or giving me a similar prompt. So there's a lot of questions which is sort of like along the lines of, was the election result what you expected? You know, how were you doing through the process? Were there any surprises for you? How did you feel about all this? And so I'm just going to kind of bunch that together into the sort of prompt did what I thought was going to happen in this election happen? Um, and I think my answer to that is broadly big picture, yes, but there were a lot of sort of specific details in there that I wouldn't necessarily have predicted and in many cases didn't even try to predict. So my general feeling with this election, and from the beginning, from like the beginning of the year, almost before COVID or whatever, um, was that. Biden was favoured to win, and I think strongly favoured to win, but I was much more sceptical of the Senate coming through for us. And so just as receipts for that, um, off the top of my head, if you check out my interview with uh, Senator Sherrod Brown, I think I said in that that although we'd been obsessing over the sort of two extremes, i.e., one, Trump finds a way back and wins this, or two, Biden absolutely wins in a sort of blowout landslide with huge majorities, I sort of felt the most likely outcome was a Biden presidency with a Republican Senate and so sort of a heavily constrained Democratic presidency, similar to sort of the tail end of the Obama years. Um, and I feel fairly good about that as an overall take on the election. Um, now, actually, to be fair, we don't yet know who will control the Senate. Um, as of recording right now, we're two seats shy, so if we win both of the Georgia uh, runoff elections, which I certainly hope that we do, we'll have um, the narrowest of narrow um, Senate majorities, a 50-50 split, uh, but if you control the vice presidency, which presumably we will, then Kamala Harris will be able to break the tie. Um, but whether it's that or like a 51-52 Republican majority, I think my overall take of confident in a Biden win, considerably less confident in controlling the Senate, 
I think that take basically um, stands up. Um, one thing I'll say about this, and I'll try to run through it quite quickly, is I think when you do a sort of post-mortem of your own analysis, it shouldn't be either a sort of gloating that you got it right, which some of what I'm about to say might come across like that, that's not my intention here, or a sort of self-flagellation that you got it wrong. Oh my god, I'm so sorry, I can't believe I thought that. Um, I'm not sure either of those are particularly helpful, because no one is psychic. No one knows, knows the future. And I think in politics especially, where we are in this kind of epistemically murky environment, where we don't really have all the information we would need to make accurate predictions, what's useful is when you get new data, whether you're right and wrong, to try and go back and say why. If you were wrong, what were you assuming was true about the world that led you to that conclusion? And being wrong in that case is actually useful, because it, it provides you with tools to go back and say, okay, I had assumed this, that doesn't seem to have been the case. So for instance, had Trump won the popular vote by six points, I would have had to say, the sort of margin of error I was attributing to polling was clearly wildly optimistic, right? That would be new information for me to absorb into how I analyse, right? And then conversely, if you're right, I think you want to look carefully and not just go, oh yeah, called it, told you so, but say, well, was I right because that was a lucky guess? Or was I right because... I was sort of correctly understanding something about the world, and that's useful information too. So that's sort of how I'm thinking about this question. I did want to take a little bit of time to do a sort of retrospective of, like, is what I thought was going to happen in the Trump presidency what happened? Um, but my purpose in doing that is neither the gloating or the self-flagellation. I, I, I think both are rightly regarded as unattractive. Um, so let's just take my, my, my sort of initial hunch, that I thought Biden was going to win, and I, I, I honestly wasn't sure what was going to happen with the Senate. I think my initial instinct, as I expressed in the, the Sherrod Brown interview, was scepticism. I think towards the very end of the campaign, um, I was seeing some of these polling and thinking, well, it seems too good to be true, but maybe it isn't. Um, and as it turned out, it was too good to be true. Um, so why did I think that? Um, well, my take on the Biden winning was comparatively unsophisticated. Um, in special elections, in um, the 2018 midterms, in a in head-to-head -head horse race polling, in Trump's approval rating, they all seemed to tell a very similar and a very consistent story. And a story that was very stable over time, that sort of pointed to anything between a sort of D plus 4 and like a D plus 10 national environment. So in other words, Democrats winning the popular vote by somewhere between 4 and 10 points. That's sort of what we looked to be on course for. And I give it as a range, because I think that's a more helpful way of talking about it. I think sometimes people can get hung up on polling for good or bad, thinking like this is a specific point that can either be right or wrong. 
Um, whereas it, what it more indicates is a range of plausible outcomes. Now, that's not to say those are the only possible outcomes, just that perhaps outcomes outside of that range are sort of considerably less likely. So, for instance, if Biden was, what, about eight points ahead um, on election night, if you say, you know, a reasonable range is anything four or five points outside of that, that would see anything from a close election, close in terms of the Electoral College at least, with the sort of Biden plus three or four win, all the way up to sort of a landslide, with a sort of Biden plus 12 sort of win. And the result we got, which the numbers are still coming in right now, but it looks like, what, about Biden plus five? Something like that? Um, like a healthy popular vote win and a fairly large percentage of the electorate. That looks like what we got, basically. It's, it's within that range. It's not exactly in the centre of that range, but you shouldn't necessarily expect it to be so. And my sort of analogy for um, Biden's chances was... This, this might fly past people who don't like card games, which may be most of you, but it's kind of like um, going all-in in poker pre-flop with two aces. Um, in that scenario, for those of you who don't play poker, you're a very, very heavy favourite to win. Like, I forget the exact odds, but 80-something percent favourite to win. Um, but you don't necessarily know how you're going to win. Um, you might get another ace and win it very comfortably. Your opponent might hit one of his cards, but you still win with the higher pair. And yes, in some circumstances, you will lose. But those circumstances are unlikely enough that you can still feel very confident about that bet. It's one of the sort of it's it's one of the best bets you can make in poker. Like you'll never get absolute certainty, but you should feel pretty good about going all in on that hand. And that's sort of where I felt we were. We were strongly favoured to win, but you know, exactly how we win, um, and the analogue of which cards come up is the Electoral College. I felt pretty damn sure Biden was going to win the popular vote, and I felt reasonably sure he was going to win it by at least three, four, five points. Um, but then, within that, I did not pretend to know exactly how that popular vote victory would come out when pushed through this sort of weird, archaic, and almost kind of like randomising mechanism of the Electoral College. And you see that even with like really expert, empirically informed commentators. They all put out their maps with like, I think this state will go blue and this state will go red. And I don't think anybody got it right, right? Because essentially at that point, that's just guesswork. There's maybe better and worse guesswork, so we can be pretty sure New York and California were going to go blue. Um, and I think even within that, I was, I was feeling pretty good about Arizona. Um, but I think I didn't even draw a map, because I think it's guesswork. But if I had, I think I would have probably got a few states wrong. I was probably... I probably would have put Georgia red. Um, so very happy that my instinct turned out to be wrong there. I think I did say I had no clue, <laughs> no clue at all what was going to happen in Florida. Um, and obviously that did turn out to be red. I felt pretty good 
that the sort of Midwestern states, um, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, that they were going to go blue, but the exact way it came up, I wouldn't have predicted, because that the polling was always showing quite a close race in Pennsylvania, but then Michigan and Wisconsin a clear Biden lead, and it was sort of like, are those states really that divergent? Because demographically and regionally, you'd expect them to go together. Is it that they are diverging? Is it that polling is underrating Biden in Pennsylvania? Or is it that it's overrating him in uh, Michigan? And as it turned out, it was the latter. I think if you'd have forced me, I don't know, I could have guessed that correctly. I may well not have done. Um, similar sort of thing with the Senate. I think my big picture instinct was right, but I had no idea how some of these individual races were going to go. The only ones I was confident about is I was confident we would lose Alabama and we'd pick up Arizona and Colorado. And I'm pretty sure all of that happened. But some of the other ones I don't know. And like with the Georgia runoffs, I certainly very much hope that we'll pick them up. But I have absolutely no idea. I really don't know. I wouldn't feel confident putting a bet on them, for instance. So why did I think that? Um, essentially because I've spent a bit of time with, like, the math of how the Senate composition works, and I think even for people who spend a lot of time with it, they don't realise how much of a heavier lift winning the Senate is versus winning the presidency. It is a much harder thing to do. So my analysis is that in order to win the presidency, right now, as the Electoral College is currently configured, a Democrat will need at least a lead of three points in the national popular vote. And that seems to be sort of borne out by what we saw. I think had Biden only won by three, it would have been much more dubious that he'd have won the presidency. He needed at least a four or a five-point win. That sounds unfair, and it is. To win the Senate, my math is, you need to win by nine points. And you need to win by nine points in consecutive elections. That is a much heavier lift. So if you think about the, the spectrum I talked about earlier, I thought from polling, from special elections, from the 2018 midterms, we could be reasonably confident we were somewhere between like a D plus four and a D plus ten national environment. Most of that range gives you a Biden win in the presidency. You know, maybe at plus four it gets pretty dicey, and even at plus five, like it was, we had to, like, hold our breath at certain moments. But, like, most of that range gives you the presidency. Only the top end of that range gives you the Senate, right? And you're seeing this with the Georgia runoffs. You can kind of consider these as, like, a microcosm of that in general, in that to win the Senate at all, with the, with the thinnest margin that is, that is mathematically possible, we'll have to win two seats in Georgia. Is that possible? Yeah, absolutely, it's possible. Um, is it a tall order? Yes. So to win in Georgia, and I'm not an expert on Georgia politics, but my understanding is to win that type of state, you will have to max out the black vote, like basically every black person in that state who is registered to vote is showing up and voting for you. You'll have to get all of the sort of 
regular um, non-black Democrats to vote for you at very high levels of turnout. You'll have to overwhelmingly win independent or moderate voters, and you'll have to pick up, you'll have to flip, not a huge amount, but at least a few Republicans. Can you do that? Yes, Biden did it, right? And we've seen it done in other states from time to time. Um, so, for instance, the Alabama special election, like that was the sort of coalition Doug Jones put together. It can be done. That is a much harder thing to do to win in a sort of, what is Georgia, like an R plus six state, R plus seven state, something like that, than to, to win in like the median state, which is what something like Colorado or something, or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, right? We don't have to win the average voter and the average state. We have to win voters and states that are considerably to the right of the national median, right? It's just a much harder thing to do. I don't say it's impossible, and like I say, I don't know, I don't pretend to know what's going to happen in the Georgia special elections. But I don't think people, I think people are increasingly becoming aware that the Electoral College is both weird and disadvantages Democrats. I don't think people quite get the gap between how much weirder and how much more of a disadvantage um, the, the, uh, the Senate is. Now, all of that, I think, is sort of fairly dry, paint-by-numbers, um, conventional political analysis. And I think the broad contours of it turned out to be right, even if, like I say, there's particular details I wouldn't have predicted. But that wasn't the, the sort of conventional wisdom on the sort of left this election. Both the sort of liberal left and the, like, socialist left, um, they were much, much, much more pessimistic about this. Towards the end, when the polling became really overwhelming, I think a lot of people sort of went, oh, yeah, you know, maybe Biden will win, but, you know, we can't count Trump out. Which, you know, I've certainly never encouraged complacency. But when Biden first got the nomination... The overwhelming reaction was he's sure to lose. There was a huge number of articles from the sort of, you know, Nathan Robinson and these sorts of Jacobin and so on, and current affairs and all of that, that sort of section of the left, that, that felt not only that Biden was an underdog, but I think Nathan Robinson said Trump's going to run circles around him. And it just, like, I was always like, and a few people called me delusional about this. I said, no, Biden's clearly a favourite. Like, clearly a favourite. And the idea that Trump's going to, like, masterfully, like, flank him from the left. Have you met Trump? <laughs> like, Trump is going to go through this, more or less as a conventional Republican. That's what he is now. The Trump who said unorthodox things about, like, infrastructure spending and stuff. That Trump stopped existing a long time ago. We're going to see a conventional Republican with perhaps more erratic language and more unforced errors than usual. But that's what we're going to see. And we're clearly in something like a D plus six national environment right now. And that was before COVID. Um, and I think it's worth sort of asking 
why that's wrong, because I, on the one hand, like, I've said at the beginning, I don't want this to sort of be a gloaty type thing, and I hope that's not how I'm coming across here. On the other hand, there has been a sort of lack of introspection from those people that I think could be really useful, actually, in, like, developing their worldview a little bit, in that they've, they've gone from saying Biden is sure to lose to Biden should have won by more. Now, I'm actually agnostic on the question of would a strong, you know, would Bernie Sanders have done better than Biden or worse? I'm actually not 100% sure on that. I think it's complicated, it's hypothetical, it depends on a lot of stuff. And I think people who claim to know for sure either way, either way, by the way, um, either that Bernie Sanders would have lost disastrously or he'd have given us that landslide, I think the arguments they are giving look a heck of a lot more like confirmation bias than careful analysis. So I'm, I'm actually agnostic on that question. The question I sort of want to zero in on is why was there such a strong feeling that Trump was almost certain to win? This was actually from both the liberal left and the sort of like left left you know and even just looking at betting markets until really the close of the election trump was a strong favorite to win re-election and i mean maybe you can sort of say you know incumbent presidents usually win that's that's fair but incumbent presidents usually at least lead in the polls in the run-up to an election, yeah, the incumbent presidents usually win thing is a historical pattern. It's not like a law of nature. It's a historical pattern based on, like, eight data points. So, and I think what sort of happened here um, was 2016. And 2016 really sort of scrambled a lot of people's political analysis. So... I'll sort of run through, like, what I thought was going to happen in 2016 and why, and then I think why other people sort of took very, very different things away from it that I think led them to make some fairly bad predictions in 2020. So in 2016... um. I've said I thought Trump was going to win. I'll try to be more cautious than that. I think I said I thought he would exceed expectations, and I gave him a 60% likelihood of winning. So, you know, that wasn't a confident, I'm sure this is going to happen. But it was certainly way, way, way more of a bullish take on Trump than was conventional, either in the sort of centre, the middle, or the left of the party. Like, really, nobody thought that was possible. Now, afterwards, of course, a, a lot of people on the left started saying, ah, see, this is what happens when you run a centrist, they're sure to lose. But that wasn't, that wasn't what they were saying at the time. At the time, they were saying, we can safely protest vote for Jill Stein because Trump will never win, right? Um, and I think my take was twofold. It was, one, Trump can definitely win this. And two, he is actually as dangerous as people are saying. And I think both of those takes essentially read to a lot of people as alarmism. And 
not just hysterionic alarmism, but ill-intentioned alarmism. In other words, that I was sort of bullying or hectoring them into supporting a corrupt neoliberal democratic establishment that they felt no longer represented them. So not only was I scaremongering, but I was scaremongering in the service of um, the malevolent force that they felt was the institutional Democratic Party. And a lot of people who were sort of, I had friendships with, processed what I was saying in that way. And that, that sort of wasn't why I was saying it, but once people have decided that you're badly intentioned, it's, there's not much you can say to talk them out of that, right? Like, if I'm lying about one thing, I'm probably lying about another, too. Um, I think my logic there was fairly straightforward. I think most people's feeling that Trump could never win was not based on data or evidence. It was based on a sort of intuitive implausibility. I cannot possibly imagine myself ever supporting someone like Trump. Therefore, no one else would either. And I think that was true across the, the left spectrum. I think that was true of centrists, liberals, leftists alike all made that assumption. Even like some sort of moderate Republicans, I think, made that assumption. Um, and I think, ultimately, I was able to sort of get over that intuitive implausibility um, a bit faster, because unlike a lot of people on the left spectrum, I actually spend a lot of time consuming um, conservative media, not just sort of like conservative academics like Roger Scruton or something, but, you know, I've, I listen to Rush Limbaugh from time to time. I've listened to Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson, um, more modern commentators. I sort of follow people like Ben Shapiro, Candace Owens. I sort of, I don't do it religiously, but I watch their videos from time to time. I watch Fox News a bit. I don't agree with any of this stuff, by the way, but I just sort of want to hear what the sort of normal means of communication sort of to and within the Republican base is. I, I have some people I follow on Facebook who are sort of like 10,000 follower um, Republican type people, you know, and sort of two things struck me in 2016. One is that Trump was seeming to many people as this utter aberration. And from, like, how national leaders in American politics usually present themselves, he was, um, at least rhetorically. Um, but from, like, the standard of, like, what right-wing talk radio says, what people say on Fox News, he wasn't... he wasn't that far out of it. And... It just sort of seemed like in many ways this was sort of a continuation or rather, you know, someone from that section of the party. Like I say, like a Rush Limbaugh in many ways um, coming to the fore. The other thing I saw is when I went on Facebook and I sort of saw like discussions amongst what you might call like, I guess, conservative activists, like people like me who are like really into politics and blog about it and talk about it and whatever. Um, I saw that on the left, those sorts of people were all getting really excited by Bernie Sanders. And on the right, those sorts of people were all getting really excited by Trump. He had a lot of energy behind him. And I think like that like got me over the point of thinking this guy can never win, to thinking, well, can he? And then when you looked at the data, 
Clinton Red led through most of that race, but unlike 2020, it was a very unstable race with a lot of big swings and a lot of factors cutting against Hillary, for instance, the media's treatment of her, in which I read an astonishing statistic that that email scandal got more press coverage than all of Trump's scandals combined, right? And I also sort of saw after the 2016 primary, a lot of people very passionately spending all of their energy tearing down Hillary and saying they wouldn't vote for her, which is both, you know, votes that are not going to Hillary, but also I think it kind of had a knock-on effect in that the sort of communication, like anyone who's sort of exposed to, to that discourse who's maybe not so strongly political themselves, generally votes Democrat. But when they log on, the people they know who are active in politics are all saying both that Hillary is awful, but also that she's guaranteed to win anyway. And I think that just created an environment where, at the margin, a lot of people just didn't bother showing up because, yeah, she's going to win, and pff, you know, this, this woman, right? Emphasis on woman. And I think all of that added up. And also, of course, Trump had an advantage in the Electoral College. That was pretty clear, even before the election. And that all just added up to me thinking, yeah, this guy's probably going to win, right? Um, which people looked at me like I was from Mars when I said that. Anyway, the other thing I sort of thought, which came across as badly intentioned, was that I think a lot of people felt that Trump would do no real harm. He's such a buffoon. Um, that he, he won't know how to run the government or anything. And then, completely counter to that, that maybe he'll do so much harm that he'll bring on the revolution. Now, I think what those of us said who were the sort of quote-unquote alarmists is, yes, this is not a conventionally competent man, right? Um, but people who are, let's put it mildly, and let's say erratic, can be disastrous in, in times of a crisis. And if you look back at history, it's sort of like the famously mad Roman emperors and so on. The fact that they were not administratively competent didn't stop them from really dropping the ball on a lot of things. And I think that comparison just seemed really wild to some people. But the sort of underlying math of it is, in what, about half of the presidencies we've had? You know, there's been a really severe crisis whose response can be enormously consequential. So, like, 9-11, the Cuban Missile Crisis, all of this sort of stuff. Now, I wasn't right about everything there, by the way. I should qualify. I think I got the big picture right, but there's all sorts of details I got wrong. So, for instance, I thought in 2016 that Trump would beat his polls nationally. And actually, he didn't. Hillary got about the 3% popular vote lead that she was projected to, but Trump beat his polls in the states that mattered. So I got the details of that wrong. And then also, with regards to the Trump really can be this damaging, um, there has been certainly an element of truth to the story that he will be held back by his complete lack of knowledge and disinclination to acquire that knowledge about how government works. Um, and a more procedurally competent person might have achieved more. So, for instance, the repeal of the ACA and the repeal of DACA were both clearly held up by really just 
not knowing or caring to learn how the system worked. Um, that is true enough, and judged purely from like a legislative output perspective, this has to be the least successful presidency of the modern era. Right? Especially considering he, they had unified control of government, at, the, at, at least from 16 to 18. Um, so, so there is some elements of truth to that story, you know, so I think it's worth acknowledging that. At the same time, the story about crisis mismanagement can be true alongside that story being true, and I think it turned out that it was, and I think most of the analysis we're seeing of COVID, and I think most of the analysis when we look back will show that there were huge, gratuitous, unforced errors, and a lot of people died who didn't have to. Now, again, as, let's just say, alarmists didn't get everything right, I think when we envisaged crisis mismanagement, we were thinking about a foreign policy crisis, which could still happen, by the way. He's got another two months in the White House, and certainly, you know, he's not something we could discount if he were to somehow wrangle a second term. Right? So, I think the broad contours of that were right, even if a lot of the, the, the details were wrong. I think, though, people who were convinced that Trump couldn't win, they had sort of processed those of us who were saying he could as, like, badly intentioned, somehow. And so there was a real reluctance to go, okay, you might have had a point there. Or like, okay, I, was, I got something wrong here. And I think just generally people don't like doing that, right? And for fairly understandable reasons. No one likes to say, you know, I got it wrong. Um, but I think because of that, they started thinking about Trump in a way that was both inaccurate and in- unhelpful. As like some kind of magician, essentially, in that Trump had seemingly violated the laws of like political nature, as they saw it, the basic axioms of how politics is supposed to work, he had seemingly utterly transcended them. Now, of course, he hadn't. Of course, appeals to sort of racial identity have always played a role in American politics. Um, of course, we have very high polarization and tribalism. He'd, he'd cut strategic deals with the religious right and so on. There's perfectly intelligible reasons why Trump won, and he only won very, very closely while losing the popular vote. But people had been so confident that this couldn't happen. The fact that it did made them treat him as, like I say, some sort of, like, political sorcerer. And I think that's sort of... There'd been, like, this aura around him that this is someone who cannot be vanquished by conventional means. And so I think what that led to, this is a long way of getting back to why I think people really just missed the obvious, like, truth that Biden was ahead the whole time, um, is because... There was sort of this feeling that we were up against a magician, right? And you can't beat a magician by just, like, shooting them dead. You have to have, like, an amulet or a spell of your own. And when we nominated 
a very, 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 very conventional politician who was running with a few twists around, like having to adapt to COVID, but was running a by-the-numbers textbook conventional campaign. The feeling was like, don't you get it? We're up against a sorcerer here. We need some magic of our own. This guy is, is just going to get blown away by this. It's going to be embarrassing. It's, it's like, in, you know, in some movie, if you see you know, some sort of Dungeons and Dragons type movie, right? Um, where you see some brave swordsman run out against the sorcerer and just get zapped by a magic spell. Something utterly outside the laws of nature. And then some other guys, like, the way to beat him is to run up against him with a sword and just cut him down. And everyone's looking at them going, did you not just see the last guy? <laughs> this guy, we need a magician of our own, right? And I think that was sort of partly... Across the spectrum, people had this idea. No, you know, we can't have a socialist or whatever. We need someone with this mystical lizard brain connection to the, to the sort of working class left behind people in the Midwest, um, you know. Or no, we, we need someone who's going to, like, excite the base in the same way that Trump excited his. And stories that really lacked a clear A to B both on the centre and in the left, there was never any real clear account of what match, what, what, like, really directly speaking to these sort of voters would look like. It was just sort of an aspiration. But then again on the left, the idea that we're going to get all this extra turnout and turn out all these people who felt shut out by the system, there was never any clear, like, story being told about who these people were or where they come from. Maybe, like, young people vaguely, um, but we never saw it. And all, all in all, there just, there just wasn't a lot of, like, joined-up thinking going on there, really. And I think it came from this idea that it was impossible for Trump to win, but he did. Therefore, he's a political sorcerer. And, like, a big part of, like my analysis of Trump over the past four years that I'm feeling increasingly sort of happy with, given this result, is sort of to say, like, this is a wolf, not a werewolf, you know? Like, it's dangerous, it will rip your face off, like, you can't get complacent around it, but it, it, it is a monster that exists within the natural order. Not some sort of supernatural thing that sits half in and half out of the natural order. Like, it can and it has been beaten by conventional natural means. And if there's one thing I'm sort of somewhat grateful for to Biden, is, God help me, what I wouldn't give right now for Elizabeth Warren to be transitioning into president. I would so much prefer to be living in that universe. But that Biden was obviously not a political magician. He ran the most conventional campaign imaginable, right? And yet he won. And I think it's going to take a long time for people to sort of give up on that instinct that, like, there's something different about Trump. There's something sort of inexplicable and erythral around him, you know? And... I actually have a hunch. I could be wrong, this is a hunch, not a confident prediction. 
that as we begin to put this into the rearview mirror, like 10, 20 years out or so, Trump isn't going to be seen as a bizarre aberration. He's actually going to be seen as quite predictable, um, quite a natural consequence of where the story of the Republican Party was going, and as quite a, just a logical step from where they were to then where they went after that. That sort of brings me to my next question. And, sorry, by the way, um, I did say the point wasn't to be like I told you so. There was probably a slight I told you so element um, to my tone there. Um, And I don't think it's particularly helpful, but you know what? I've kind of earned a brief moment after, you know, spending... At this point, it has to be thousands of hours on American politics during this period. Um, And my big top-line takes on it, um, having people look at me like I'm from another planet, um, both in thinking Trump could win in 2016 and be very harmful, and in thinking that um, he could lose in 2020 through purely conventional means. Um, So I will say, I've got plenty of stuff wrong in the meantime, right? Just by way of example, I mentioned Alabama. I was reasonably confident that we wouldn't win the Alabama special election and was very happy to be proven wrong. But my own self-assessment of my commentary during the Trump presidency, which has been the entire history of this podcast. I had a blog a little bit before that. Um, But almost all of the public commentary I've done has been during the Trump presidency, or maybe very slightly preceding it for some of it, Um, is I feel overall quite happy with the way I've approached it. how I've thought about it, and that more than that I sort of got the big calls right, because the big calls right could just be be luck, and also, you can get unlucky. Trump could have won, you know, in 2020, right? Um, But overall, I sort of feel fairly happy with the way I've thought about it, and what I'm not trying to do here is say I was right and you were wrong. I'm trying to say these are the reasons I approached it in a certain way, I thought about it in a certain way, and I'm not even saying they're definitively right. I'm saying they make sense to me, they seem to be internally coherent, and they seem to be at least mostly, though not completely, but sort of mostly validated by sort of the empirical evidence that the world has thrown at us. So in any sort of political analysis, we should be cautious. And, you know, any sentence that we say should implicitly or explicitly sort of include the thought awaiting contrary evidence or argument. I'm not saying this is absolutely true. I'm not saying I have 100% epistemic confidence in it. I'm saying this makes sense to me. This has been useful to me. And it might be useful for you too. Um, I hope. I hope it is. I'm just. I'm not 
even saying you have to think about everything like I am. I'm saying, I think this is at least worthy of consideration. Okay? So I did sort of want to put that in. But yeah, overall, that... And I went on a bit, but I've covered so much of this presidency. And I thought it was worth taking the time to do a bit of self-reflection about sort of the overall nature of my coverage and the sort of theory of politics that I've sort of been ascribing to during this period. Um, And I could talk way more about this than I did when I did my first recording of this. But those are like my big um, takeaways of sort of my um, sort of self um, reflections on this. And those who point out failings in other people's political commentary and analysis and predictions should be open to the to the same in reverse. So, you know, if there's some big thing that you think I got wrong, or, and perhaps more interestingly, if you think I made the right predictions, but for the wrong reasons, I'd be not only open to, but genuinely interested in hearing that, because it, it might be that I sort of got the big calls right, but, like, my reasoning for thinking that wasn't very joined up or wasn't very well connected. Um, so I, I'd be really interested in hearing that, or if there's sort of something, or if you think I'm just giving myself too much credit here and there's some big things I did get wrong, that as well, right? But let's return to that, that, that point I made about I don't think, looking back, Trump is going to seem that unusual. I got a bunch of questions, essentially um, asking, how do I see, assuming we don't take the Senate, we might yet, I'm not making a prediction on that one, but assuming we don't take the Senate, how do I see the Biden presidency shaping up? Someone asked me, he's obviously a decent man, and this was someone of the left, so it seems like Biden has done a good job in selling that image. He's obviously a decent man, do you think that decency will help him bring a few Republicans on board to be able to do at least some stuff, and whether his, you know, another person asked, do I think his um, focus on bipartisanship, on bringing the country together again, um, is going to work? Um, No, no, I don't. And I'll say as preface to this, I don't think it's unimportant that the president at least attempts to present an image of himself as decent and compassionate. I don't think it's unimportant that he tries to say that I'm the president of the whole country. I think symbolism matters. I think the symbolism of having the first black president matters. I think the symbolism of having the the first um, female president would have mattered. Uh, I think the symbolism of having the first black woman as vice president matters. Um, and yes, I think the symbolism of like not having an antagonistic, unpleasant person, I'll put it no more strongly than that, as president matters. I I think it's, you know, Trump made a whole load of people in this country, say just to take an example, people from immigrant backgrounds, feel hated and unwanted. And I don't want people to feel that way. And to the extent that they now feel like that less, that is a good thing. And it's something to be welcomed. Right? And while I don't see the appeals to bipartisanship really going anywhere legislatively, I don't think it's an awful thing that he's saying them. 
I don't think it's an awful thing that he should attempt to reach people who didn't vote for him. I think that's sort of just part of the standard performance that, that we should expect of national leaders. You know, democracy isn't just about the counting of votes, it's about the care with which decisions are made, and offering a certain level of respect to people who voted the other way. These are, these are, I, I, I call Democrats out for being too obsessed with norms, but no, like maintaining those, those basic norms is not an awful thing, and it was harmful that Trump so obviously violated them, right? So I'm not saying it's, it's a bad thing in any way that, that Biden tries to come across as a nice guy. I'm not saying it's a bad thing that he tries to unify. Um, I just think in terms of, like, will that translate to a legislatively productive strategy, um, I highly doubt it. Now, I'm sure there'll be some deals made around the margins. You know, Trump and Mitch McConnell will sit down and they'll hash a few things out. They'll trade a few tax cuts for, like, increased unemployment or stuff like that. And Biden does seem fairly well-placed to do that. Will Biden be able to convince some swing state Republicans to vote for a public option in health care? No. Will he be able to vote, convince them to vote for... You know, will he be able to do what someone like LBJ might have done and say, look, we've got this big environment package, but I tell you what, tell you what, Ben Sass, if you vote for it, I could build a lot of solar farms in your state. How many do you want? How many jobs do you want to see? That sort of deal-cutting, personal relationships, surface-level corruption type of politics, um, I don't think that exists anymore in the States. And for my full view, see my episode, uh, Brexit, Congress, and Culture, which I think still stands up pretty well, in that I think Biden came of an age, and the older voters who found Biden's vision attractive came of an age, where that sort of compromise, consensus, politicians acting as individuals representing, you know, regional interests, deal-cutting, kind of greasy, slimy in some ways, compromise politics... I think they see that as the sort of norm, and our current partisan two teams, acrimonious, mutually distrustful, essentially institutionalized trench warfare as an aberration which we'll eventually navigate out from. My read is that what I've called the congressional, the compromise consensus, individual regional interests model, that was actually the aberration. There was a sort of period 60s, 70s, early 80s, where that sort of materialised, but then actually the sort of two teams partisan, what I call parliamentary, that is actually the default resting state of the politics in a country like ours, um, with you know, the demographic and ideological cleavages that we have, right? And again, see my episode for my full thoughts there. And I think you're seeing this right now, right? This idea that the Republicans will just sort of snap back to normal. It's sort of like a magical thinking. I sort of mocked the left a little bit. Did I mock? That's a hard word. If I mocked, I didn't mean to mock. I sort of gently called out the left and maybe sort of gently ripped at them for thinking that, like, if only we nominate a socialist. You know, Amy McGrath only lost in Kentucky because she wasn't a socialist. That's kind of like magical thinking, right? Um, but equally, this idea 
that's held by national leaders of the party. What did Obama always say about all the racist conspiracy theories against him? He said, the fever will break. That's magical thinking. Like when Biden says, after Trump's out, Republicans will come to their senses. That's magical thinking. Right? Um, it's just, and I wonder if they even really believed it. I get the feeling Obama did. I don't know if Biden be believes it. Maybe. I don't, but it's, it's you, know, you know, we have this strong partisanship and this strong desire to distrust and punish the other team for a variety of historical and cultural and uh, structural reasons, which are more complex than I'm going to explain in this episode, but are nonetheless very real. And until those reasons change, that sort of political culture isn't changing. And not only are, are the sort of structural forces that lead to that not going anywhere, they're getting more entrenched and more profound. Just look at the way the Republican Party is going along with Trump's conspiracy theories that he won the election. And I think we can be, even on the left, we're too, we're too nice about Republicans. We're too easy to let them off the hook. We sort of, what's our analysis of that? We say, oh, well, you know, with Trump in office, they're scared to anger their base, and they know it's all BS, um, but, but they sort of have to go along with it for now. I don't think we should give them the credit of viewing them as passive rather than active participants in this attempted authoritarian takeover. What do I mean by that? It's not just that their base is angry and their base trusts Trump more than they do and that their political prospects will be damaged by them speaking out against the sort of conspiracy theories that Trump's peddling. That's true to a degree, and it probably explains the decision-making of a certain number of elected Republicans. But for another, I think they are intentionally creating, through perhaps less extreme and gratuitous language than someone like Rudy Giuliani, they are intentionally creating a base that is aggrieved and conspiratorial and distrustful of the national media, experts, the opposition party, because that base will be useful to them in the future. They are, they are cultivating it. In the same way as since the Southern strategy, it's not just that Republicans pander to racism. Republicans intentionally perpetuate it. They require a certain element of their base to be in a state of heightened racial fear because they are structurally dependent on people feeling that way in order to get their votes. They require a certain number of conservative white evangelical Christians to feel like a, a, an increasingly liberal society is going to come along and put them in concentration camps. People really believe these things, right? Um, in the same way, it is useful for the Republican Party for a certain amount of their base, not all of them, and maybe not even a majority, to feel like the election is stolen. Now, sometimes that'll get out of their hands. Sometimes they won't be able to sort of shut that down when they need to shut it down. But on balance, I think there's a number of Republicans who prefer to have it rather than not. And that is not going away. I'd be delighted if it did. Um, I hope to be wrong there. And look, what other choice do we have, right? If we don't take the Senate, 
we have to hope that Biden can work his magic. Maybe. I'm not, you know, that'll be the card we have left to play. But it's not a very strong card, and I don't hold out much expectation that it will work. Maybe. And I don't, if, if it does come to that, I don't resent Biden for trying to play that card. It's the play we have left. But I don't hold out a huge amount of hope for it. I hope I'm wrong on that. Um, moving along, a few questions, and I'll do this one very quickly because I'm coming up on my own time limit, is what do I think about Trump's whole refusing to concede, challenging it in court, trying to get states not to issue their electors? Um, I mean, I'm not an expert on any of this stuff. It seems to be fairly unsuccessful so far. Like, I think they're almost uniformly losing in court. States are certifying their results. Um, I also think, even if it doesn't work, it's incredibly dangerous and irresponsible. You know, people need to trust that their elections are legitimate, and more than that, when you've got this sort of creaky, antiquated, no longer really fit for the purpose constitutional machinery, if you're not going to take the effort to, like, tune that up and get it working like a modern democracy should, you have to, if you, you have to take real care to operate it responsibly. The analogy I'll use here is if you've seen the HBO series Chernobyl. I really liked it. I thought that was good. Um, and spoilers alert here. Spoilers for Chernobyl. Well, anyway, um, what sort of caused that, that nuclear meltdown was a combination of two things. It was that the Soviet nuclear reactors were poorly made, and they sort of took the cheapest options, and that there were sort of design flaws in them, and that the people operating it were amazingly, like breathtakingly irresponsible in how they did it. And it was the combination of those two things. You know, if you'd have had competent people managing a poorly designed machine, it would have been okay. Or conversely, if the machine had been sort of a modern, built properly thing with irresponsible people, they'd have done some damage, but nowhere near as bad as what they actually did, right? Do you see where I'm going with this metaphor? Um, our sort of constitutional system is the nuclear reactor, and it's kind of out of date and poorly designed and no longer really fit for purpose. Now, that might be okay with, 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 with responsible people managing it, but with absolutely grotesquely feckless people who have no sense of the dangers of what it is they're doing, um, that's a really bad place to be in. And I don't have any clear sense of, like, if there is a constitutional nuclear meltdown, what that will look like, to carry the analogy a little bit further, that when Chernobyl happened, a sort of chain of events was set in motion that no one had really contemplated before. No one really knew that that was possible until they took this antiquated machinery and pushed it to a place it should never have been pushed. And then once they did, they found out that there is this chain of events that can happen. So I don't know what the sort of constitutional equivalent of that is. And um, hopefully we'll, you know, make it through the next few months without finding out. Um, but the odds of some sort of constitutional meltdown have to be higher than they were previously. You know, someone asked me before the election what I thought the odds of, like, a, you know, a real constitutional crisis would be. And I said, somewhere between 3 and 30%. And they said, well, 
that's a pretty big range. And I said, you're asking me to predict what happens when we push a button that is connected to real machinery, when we push a button that has never been pushed before. I don't know. And given that we just don't know, is it breathtakingly irresponsible what Trump is doing and his toadies are doing, right? Um, I think I would probably revise those numbers down a bit now because I think the worst-case scenario for me was a genuinely close election. Um, I think Biden seems to have done enough where sort of quote-unquote normal cheating will no longer do the job. Um, But I don't know. Um, My best guess would be we'll eventually make it through this, but I think the ways in which Trump is behaving do run some sort of low-order probability uh, risk of some genuinely dangerous series of events, which perhaps no one could have foreseen in advance um, happening. Um, I don't know what the probability of that is. I don't think it's a majority. I don't think it's more than 50%, but it's not zero either. Um, So that's not an especially encouraging answer. Final question, and I'll try to do this one quickly. Actually, you know what? It's an important question, and... I'm probably going to run over my self-imposed time limit, but I think with this one, I'm hitting my key points that I want to hit, and these are big, complex questions, and it's worth thinking about them. Um, So even on the re-record, I might be running a little over. But, like, a lot of people have asked me this one. So I got um, a message saying, we did what you wanted and voted for Biden, and we've now given up our leverage, except for perhaps protesting or something like that. How do progressives get what we want out of the Biden presidency, given that he's already seeming to be pivoting towards the right? And actually, personal friends have got in touch and sort of said, okay, what now? You know, what do we do now? Um, How, you know, the plan was get them in power and hold them accountable. We've done step one. Step two is seeming like, (sighs) what are we supposed to do here? Um, And I guess two things to say. One is I like the question. I'm distrustful of any attitude that sees any election as the sort of be-all and end-all, and that, like, we just need to get this one person in power and... um, everything will sort of sort itself out. I was distrustful around that narrative, uh, you know, around Bernie Sanders, and I'm distrustful of it, I'm more distrustful of it around Joe Biden. And so I'm glad people aren't thinking about it that way. I think that's, that's um, a very good thing. And I think there's been a narrative um, on the left that liberals think merely getting Trump out of office will be enough and then everything will be fine. Um, I actually don't think most liberals I know think that either. Um, I think there's sort of a lot of relief right now, but I don't think anyone sensible thinks that everything's all over. And if they do, then I just disagree with them. So I am glad people are thinking in that way. I think they're wrong to feel so hopeless that, that as, as one person put it, that we've given up our leverage. 
right? Withholding your vote is one method you can exert leverage over a political party, and it's not the only method, and I think it's not the best method, frankly, right? One point to make before I get to the question, like I say, I like the question, is even if this was all we achieved, it was still worth doing. And I don't think this has to be all we achieved, but by replacing Trump with Biden, we have removed a child from the thermonuclear monarchy. We have reduced the risk of a true existential crisis, like I talked about with the last one. We have ensured that for this crisis, and if another one follows it, there will at least be competent people in charge. We have protected, at least in the medium run, the fates of 800,000 DACA recipients. We will now be rejoining the Paris Accords. These are all good things. They're not everything progressives wanted. They're not even most of what progressives wanted. It might only be 10 or 20% of what progressives wanted. It was still worth our, it was still worth an hour of our time to show up and vote. Like this was worth achieving. And so I just want to advocate for a little bit of a mindset shift here in that if we don't get the green new deal out of this we failed. Right? Um I'd say think about it more like how much of what we want are we going to get? Like, what per- instead of do we get it or not, think about it as, like, what percentage do we get? Um, by replacing Trump with Biden, in and of itself, we got the, those good and very important and consequential things I just mentioned. Call that 20% of what we want. Say we can take the Senate. Even with a narrow majority, I think we'd get a bit more. I think we'd get a COVID relief bill. I think maybe we'd get some improvements to the Affordable Care Act. I think maybe we'd get something on student debt and the environment. Probably falling well short of what progressives would ideally want to see, but not nothing. Substantive things that would improve the lives of millions. Say, and I'm being a bit optimistic here, but it's not utterly impossible. Say in the next midterms, we can have solid majorities in both the House and Senate with a large contingent of progressives within them, then I think more stuff comes on the table. Say that gets us to 50% of what we want, right? So I'd think about it much more like that rather than as a binary, right? So that's like the first mindset shift that I want to argue for. Um, And and getting 10% more is better than getting 10% less. Right? Um, And that's not really either a liberal incrementalist or a radical view. It's just like a view that we want more of good things and less of bad ones, you know? And I think that's common sense. So don't, don't feel awful that we haven't achieved everything yet. Of course we haven't. And I don't think anything about the arguments I gave for voting in this election implied that the election in and of itself, would achieve everything. Indeed, I I took pains to stress that it wouldn't, right? It was still worth doing, and you should feel good about that. As I ended my last episode with, if you voted for Biden, even reluctantly, even perhaps, you know, retaining a sort of 
individualist, expressivist view of voting that I argued against, but you recognised that the sense of collective responsibility overpowered that. You were part of making the world not as bad as it might have otherwise been, in a way that's not big or dramatic or that you'll ever really be thanked for. Um, but just, you were part of making the world not as awful as it could be. And that's good, and you should feel good about that, right? You know, the, the future of making everything better is not all on you, but you played your part in making it not as bad as it could have been, and that's a good thing, you know? So that's, that's the first thing I want to say. However, I am not despairing. I am pessimistic, certainly, about the future of the Republican Party, but I'm not despairing that we might get more than the bare minimum out of the Biden presidency. I really don't know what's going to happen. And the, 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 a lot of the questions say, okay, but like the, the only tool we have left now is like protest. I'm not disparaging protest, and I think um, you know, big social movements can be good for like moving the Overton window, but actually my mind goes much more to specifics. Um, so right now, in this moment, if you're listening to this within like a week or two of it coming out, the number one, two, three, four, and five thing you can do to ensure we get more of those good things that we want from the Biden presidency is if there is anything you can do to help us put down those Georgia Senate races, you need to do it, right? Because just like the difference between Biden and Trump is not everything we want, but it is consequential. The difference between Biden with a Republican Senate and a Democratic Senate is not everything we want, but that is very consequential. I think there's a lot of good center-left reforms that are on the table with the Democratic Senate that are off the table with a Republican one, right? And I agree, it is preposterous that it comes down to one unrepresentative state that decides that, but that is the world we're living in, right? Um, I don't necessarily know off the top of my head what we can do. Um, It does seem like giving money to these sorts of Senate races does hit diminishing marginal returns at a certain point. Um, But, I mean, my God, if you live in Georgia and you're listening to this, um, please, please, please vote talk to everyone you know, make sure they're voting too. You know, like I say, I don't know a lot about Georgia-level state politics, um, but just, I think when in doubt, just tell the truth. Like, whether or not we win these races is not gonna, you know, what's not gonna happen is there's gonna be some sort of socialist revolution or something that moderates might be scared of, but what will we get? You know, we might get more COVID relief. We might get, we'll probably get like a Voting Rights Act, John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, We may well get improvements to our healthcare system that cover, you know, incrementally more people. We'll get sensible stuff that most people want, and we won't if we lose. That is, that is, you know, when in doubt about the best strategy, just tell the truth and let people make their own mind up, right? Um, And that is the truth, right? That that is sort of what's at stake here. Um, And that sort of points me to, like, a broader shift that I'd like to see on the left. And this does have practical consequences, even though it seems like an abstract thought. Is Could we please start talking about Republicans as if they have moral agency? Like, all of our analysis on the left has been focused on Democratic 
cowardice and unwillingness to fight. Which is certainly real in some circumstances, or tactical ineptitude on the part of Democrats, or pursuing the wrong strategy, or having the wrong messaging or the wrong platform. I'm not really disputing any of that, but let's keep in mind who the bigger villains are here. Joe Biden has run on a platform which is to the right of me, but still includes a lot of good stuff that I think would be wonderful to see happening. You know, he's committed to an environment plan which is essentially the Green New Deal in all but name. Um, He's said good stuff about student loan cancellation, which, yes, it doesn't go as far as Bernie, but it would still be good. A public option would be a good thing. This would improve the lives of millions. This would give tens of millions of Americans who right now their entire lives are consumed by fear for their loved ones, not having coverage. This would give them another option, right? This is all good stuff. And the difference between it happening or not is not primarily about democratic cowardice. The main thing is that Republicans are implacably opposed to all of it, and if they control a single lever of power, they will block it, right? This is a failing of values, not of strategy, right? This is a failing of morality, right? These are morally confused people, right? I'm not saying every individual Republican voter, um, but certainly the party leadership. And we just take it as writ that Republicans will be this way, and assume that the real enemy is like Democrats not fighting hard enough, without denying that that is true sometimes. Failings of values trump that, right? And there is only so hard Democrats can fight if they do not control the Senate, right? There is only so much you can do there, and to just say it would all happen if you just fought harder is a sort of magical thinking, essentially. And so I would like us to approach this with a sense of perspective, because I think what's happened is the sort of left movement has been led by people whose entire careers have been sort of inter-party struggles within the Democratic Party, and we've picked up a certain amount of rhetoric from them about how, like, establishment and corrupt and unwilling to really fight for it, um, the Democratic Party leadership is. There are elements of truth to that, but I think we've allowed that to sort of subsume us totally into thinking that if we just got the right people in charge of the Democratic Party, people who would, you know, really fight, then everything else would sort of work itself out, and that's just not the case. That's not the world we're living in. You know, um, and this, these are all choices Republicans have made. It's not inevitable that they be this way. You know, Mitt Romney was maybe the one good Republican through this period, or one not quite as grotesquely awful Republican. It was his father who sort of fought a battle for the future direction of the Republican Party against Richard Nixon, and Richard Nixon went for the law and order, coded racist appeals, Southern strategy stuff. 
and won that fight. But there were people on both sides of that within the Republican Party. Just as there have been people within the Republican Party, too quiet, too timid in my view, who have tried to push back against Trump, and Republican voters, Republican mid-level people, Republican national leaders have made choices that led them to this point. And they can and should be held accountable for those choices. We shouldn't treat the Republican Party as just a force of nature that's guaranteed to be evil. You know, focus your moral outrage where it's really due. Which is not to say we shouldn't make strategic criticisms of Democrats. I would be amazed if I got through the Biden presidency without making strategic criticisms of what he's doing. But let's keep that perspective in mind of who the greater and lesser villains are here. Right now, in talking about a spectrum of like, will we get what we want? Um, in talking about like, you know, really like recognizing who the real villains are, um, it seems to me that the, the, there are a whole load of quite sort of simple, practical steps that we can take to get a, a greater percentage of the good things that we want. So the, the first one that occurs to me is. Um, in the election, we saw a number of um, ballot measures succeed, even in states that we failed in. So Florida voted for Trump, but it also voted for minimum wage increase, right? Um, so that, and, and um, some drug legalization or decriminalization passed in a bunch of other states, that speaks to me of a strategy. Um, where maybe partisanship and partisan identity is so intractably locked in that there's only so much you can do within that paradigm. But a lot of states have mechanisms. I've worked on some of these campaigns, in fact, um, to get stuff on the ballot and put it to people. And it seems like if you can separate the issue from, like, the partisan whose team are you on, there's some good avenues for success there. So that seems to me like something that, that, that if you live in a state with ballot initiatives access, that seems to me like a really productive use of your time. More than that, um, care about local politics. You know, we're going to have a hell of a time retaining control of the House because redistricting, it looks like the states that control that Republicans have helped by and large. Um, we need as, as much energy and attention and effort as we put towards the presidency, correctly so, needs to be going to local and state level because if, as I talked about um, in my ethics of voting piece, we're going to start changing some of the structures with respect to, to, to money and politics, with respect to like locking in a two-party system, um, with respect to like maybe alternate methods of voting so on and so forth right that's probably going to start at the state level and so you've got to care about that you've got to elect democrats and then you've got to be willing to like do a little bit of homework to know who the best democrats to vote for in primaries are that's a boring answer i know but like that's another thing that we can i mean this is the thing people say there's nothing we can do other than protest there's actually a whole load of stuff it's just not very interesting, but, like, this is it, right? You asked for my answer, this is it, right? Um, beyond that, at the national level, let's start electing more progressives. You know, it is like, you know, we've been able to have, what, like, four, five, six really strong progressives that we've won in primary challenges. Okay, that's a start. Seems to me like there's a lot more work to, to be done there. 
probably the majority of the Democratic caucus is like safe seats. There's got to be, what, 180 safe seats. Well, we can, we can run an out-and-out -out communist and they'll still win because there's that many Democratic votes. So those, to my mind, those districts should be represented by people whose values are generally at the sort of median voter of their district, which will probably be very left-wing. Um, so let's, you know, pick a progressive who's running for office and get behind them. If you think you can do it, if you think, you, you know, you can raise the money and generate the support and whatever, run for office yourself. You know, and this, this is all quite dull stuff, right? I'll add one more, which is you know why when it really gets down to it, the democratic leadership doesn't really give as much voice to progressives as perhaps we feel like they should, is we're yet to put down competitive races. And that's what matters to them. I'm not saying this is necessarily the right attitude. Um, I'm not... I'm just telling you this is how they think, and this is what matters to them. And I know people in the DNC, and this is how they think about it. They think about it this way. Progressives can win in AOC's Queen's District, where there's 85% Democratic registration. In other words, any Democrat will win there. Right? They cannot put down competitive districts for us. And very clearly... The congressional leadership, Schumer and Pelosi, are driven by what their frontline members want. That's clearly at the heart of their decision-making. So um, by frontline members, I mean the members who are holding down districts that are competitive and that Republicans can win. And so just to give a quick example of this, if you take the case of impeachment, Pelosi was always very sceptical of impeachment. It was something she didn't want to do, even though the left of the party had been calling for it, basically from day one, and actually on constitutionally reasonable grounds. Trump has committed impeachable offences throughout his presidency, right? The, the one he eventually got impeached for was one of many. But Pelosi really didn't want to do it. Why? Because people like Max Rose, who was holding down an R plus 11 district in Staten Island, they didn't want to. Now, you can argue maybe that's wrong. Maybe Pelosi's decision-making shouldn't be tethered merely to the front line of her caucus, but that's clearly what it is, right? Um, now, what happened with the Ukraine phone call? is a lot of the people in those frontline districts had national security credentials. And that hit home for them in a way some of the other stuff hadn't. And that was something they were willing to say, OK, this is something I can defend to my constituents. This is something I personally feel is an impeachable offence. And about eight of them, which is a large chunk of the frontline districts, came out altogether and said... This one warrants an impeachment inquiry, whereas they had been against it before. And within two hours of them doing that, Pelosi had switched her position. So Pelosi clearly gives vastly disproportionate weight to the frontline members. I think Schumer does, is a slightly different calculus in the Senate, but I think he does something similar. I think this is how Democrats think about it. And there's a, I don't love it, but there's a certain logic to it. The logic is anyone can win in, at Queen's in AOC's district, her preferences aren't important because she's not in any danger. The people who are holding down the seats that give us the majority, those are the people whose opinions matter because without them we don't have power. 
I don't love it, but there is a certain logic to it. Now, of those people in frontline districts, you can say, well, maybe this one's a progressive because they support Medicare after all or something, but actually there's no member of the squad is in anything other than a completely safe seat, right? No one who sort of self-consciously embraces the sort of Bernie-crat rhetoric is in anything other than a safe seat, right? And in 2018, we had an opportunity to prove this, and we didn't. So what happened was, um, there's this, the, the Justice Democrats and groups like that, they had this sort of theory of the case, that if you're looking at, like, R plus 10 districts you want to go for, it's like the rural ones with disadvantaged people in, because they'll buy into this sort of, like, class-based narrative, and they'll see how good a minimum wage increase or Medicare for all would be for them, and will sort of win them by appeals to class. The House leadership had the view that it's suburban districts, particularly suburban women, and will sort of appeal to them by sort of centre-left kitchen table policies and a hatred of Trump. And they both did their thing. And actually, you, you had a sort of rare natural experiment here in that there was, I think, 16 of the Justice Dems and more, maybe about 30 or so of the sort of um, establishment Dems. And the establishment Dems took most of their target seats and the Justice Dems took none of them. That mattered for our power within the party. I know every, no one really talks about this on the left, but if you want to know why we're not listened to as much as anything, it was that. Because in pa on paper, you're, you're dealing with the same thing, like an R plus 5, an R plus 6, an R plus 10 district, right? Um, and I don't think it was actually even about messaging. I think there was just a strategic error in that we got it into our head that it's like, poor rural districts that will really feel the value of these class appeals. And just that was never true, right? The, the demographic that was most open to voting Democrat who hadn't previously was suburban women, right? And because we were so sort of locked into a sort of class-based narrative on the left, we thought these people are class enemies and perhaps poorer, poorer rural people are sort of class allies. But that's just, I, I could do a whole episode on this, but that's not how the world works, right? Um, but House leadership looked at that and said, what really matters to us is having a House majority. We have one way of going, which are the people who put down their seats, and we have one way of going, which is people who were not for 16. Who do you think they listened to, right? So, you're going to hate this, and this isn't what anyone wants to hear. You know what you really need to do to build power within the Democratic Party? You need to conquer new ground for them. You need to put down competitive seats. I think having more safe seats go to progressives will help. I think that will help build our voice. But you'll always be on the outside and you'll always be distrusted. Why? Because you got that seat by beating one of their friends. You need to get your seat by beating a Republican. That's what you need to do to build power within the party. Look at Georgia. A lot of people are crediting Stacey Abrams with that, and as far as I can tell, deservedly so. She spent a lot of time registering voters in that state. Apparently hundreds of thousands of voters. There's no way Biden carries that without her work. You've got Clinton, Hillary Clinton, you know, Obama tweeting out, retweeting her stuff. Thank you, Stacey. You know, she has the great and good of the party 
praising her holy name. And a lot of people are saying, what should we do? Should she be DNC chair? Should we be putting her towards the next Senate seat? What do we... As far as I can tell, Stacey Abrams can name her next job within the Democratic Party. She can... If she goes to Biden and says, I've got a new thing where I've got a plan to, like, make, God knows, Texas blue for us, but I'm going to need a billion dollars. You know what Biden's going to say to her? He's going to say, oh, yeah, let me, let me work on that billion for you. Let's see how we can do here. Right? And this is just so how the world works, right? Like, you, get, you build power by being able to demonstrate power and being able to do stuff for people. You don't build power from being seen as, like, I don't know, someone who's, who's always letting the team down, right? Who's the player you make captain of the football team? Is it the one who's always scoring the touchdowns for you? He's always setting up the pass that helps the other person score the touchdown. He's always, like, rallying everyone. He's always contributing to your wins. I'm using a male pronoun here. Apologies, obviously. Women play football, too. Um, Or is it the kid who might be a good player? You don't know. But he only shows up to practice half the time. And when he does, all he does is complain. And, like, he's telling you, oh, if only you did this, this, and this, you'd win. But he's not showing you it. Who's captain of the football team? We might wish the world were different than that, and that reason and argument would carry the day, but we would only be wishing, right? So, I hate to say it, but, like, I'm telling you, if progressives can start to put down competitive districts, well, number one... That'll help us get to full control of government, and that'll increase our majorities, just in general. will make it more likely that we can do good stuff. But it is those members, it is people who can put down competitive districts, who are disproportionately listened to. I want some of our team in that little grouping. And that goes to a final, final point, and then I'm done, is I want us to have a more, like evangelizing mindset about this. I want us to sort of think, what can we do to, like, start persuading people? Let's do it like the early Christian church did it, where we see a sort of hostile island of Britain filled with people worshipping the pagan gods, and we think, okay, we're going to go over there and change all that. Right? That's not an endorsement either of Christianity or paganism, by the way, it's just a metaphor. Um... But, like, I see all these posts all the time where people are like, well, my uncle voted Trump and... And the point always is some sort of ideological point they were trying to prove anyway. And my question is, every single time, what, what have you said to him? What have the conversations you've been having to try and deconvert him? What's been your long-run strategy? Have you done anything at all, right? We need to get much more comfortable talking to people who aren't in our tribe to begin with, right? And that will require a degree of ideological flexibility, a a, a degree of being able to readjust and readapt. You know, if we were not for 16 in the competitive races, what do we learn from that? Because there was no self-mortem of that. None. In our personal lives and in our political goals, 
we need to be about making converts to the cause. And we need to be about maybe changing our messaging, changing our emphasis. What do people need to hear? You know, we need to do all of that. So to recap, there is so much that we can be doing to drag this presidency to the left. More than you will have time to take on. And if you can only take on some of this, you know, you're doing the Lord's work, right? But to recap, one, it's not all that bad. It's, it was still worth doing to get Trump out, even if nothing follows. Two, right now, win Georgia. That's the number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven things. Beyond that, let's work on getting progressives elected, and let's work on maintaining or expanding our congressional majorities. Particularly, can progressives put down swing states? Can we beat Republicans, not other Democrats, in order to get our people in power? Finally, care about local and state-level politics. If there's ballot initiatives in your state, that's looking like a very promising vehicle for change. More than that, state level is the way we're going to sort of reform our politics from the ground up. Finally, see yourself as an evangelist, not of a religion, but of an, of an ideology. Try to convert people. It takes time. It's not easy. But see yourself in that role, right? And be open to like the way you're saying things might not be the right way to say it, to make converts. That is all stuff we could be doing. And I'm going to try and do some of it, although I'm in the UK now, so I think I need to put my evangelizing towards our politics, which is, I'm happy to say, equally messed up. Equally, it is messed up in, in different, but nonetheless quite severe ways. But yeah, that is all stuff we can be doing. And those are just my ideas. You know, I'm sure other of you, other people out there have other ideas, but that is all stuff we can be doing. And yeah, I uh, encourage you to think about it on your own, what you can be doing, and to maybe consider doing some of that stuff. Okay, thanks for listening.